Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, back to school is just around the corner now. And I'm going to be meeting a parent who is calling for a complete overhaul of how we treat neurodiversity. As the current model, she says, isn't serving the teachers or the children. Michelle says her nine-year-old said he didn't want to live as school was causing so much anxiety and stress. She and educational psychologist Pauline Cogan will talk about how overwhelmed teachers and support assistants are and how they need to retrain to spot signs earlier and teaching methods will also have to change to accommodate the now more diagnosed neurodiversity in each classroom. I'll also be joined by Andrew Dunn. He's a healthcare professional who, with his team, helped patients fight arthritis, atrial fibrillation, prostate cancer, breast cancer, Parkinson's disease and other conditions by prescribing exercise, not more pills. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I went out with some friends last Saturday night. We had missed a wedding as we were away. So we headed out with the newlyweds and another few who had missed the big day too. Dinner and drinks was on the agenda in Dublin, in the sun, didn't bother bringing a jacket. So much joy there already. And our meal was followed by unexpected dancing. We popped into a bar, our pal was DJing and it was so good for the soul to let loose on a dance floor. I had an absolute ball. I laughed, I chatted, I danced, I got into bed with throbbing feet at 3am. And I just thought it was worth mentioning because sometimes that is what is best for our health and wellness. I loved it. Now that said, combining that night with trying to get back into getting up early in the mornings to catch up with my health coach course, which went a little awry over the summer, the kids being off and that dance floor marathon, I have been tired this week. I've had a couple of bedtimes at 8.30pm, which I have to say I love. And I was watching a talk by Australian doctor Libby Weaver and she was talking about the effect of stress on the body. Well, She actually started out talking about how incredible the body is and how its various processes need nutrients and stress slows it down. She was talking about all the biochemical processes that go on all the time uh, for us to just function and how when they're not firing correctly, the body will adapt and do the bare minimum, which is why she said often when things are good with our health, our skin glows. When it's not, the body doesn't prioritise it as it's not a necessity and we can look a bit dull or pasty. And when it comes to stress and us being in fight or flight all the time, because we're juggling so much and often we're ploughing on without fully resting or restoring lots of our bodily functions from digestion to the fuel our body uses for energy is affected. She was talking about a patient she had who had just completed a marathon. So She'd been eating really well, she'd been training really hard and she came after putting on a considerable amount of weight. And Libby also spoke about a time in her life and she had been an avid runner at college and when she qualified, she took on a job at a retreat which meant she was up in the morning to teach Tai Chi which is basically deep breathing and slow movement and then she had to lead people on a gentle walk which was on the flat for 20 minutes. So a big change from what she'd been doing at college But she actually found she was losing weight and what it came down to was stress. So in today's world, she was saying we see emails as stress, our schedules as stress. And when our body is in that stress response mode, it uses glucose as energy and not the fat stores. Now, I am vehemently opposed to weight loss being the only marker for good health. 
weight is only even coming into this equation because of the presence of stress and how it's affecting the natural workings of the body. So the marathon runner was too stressed and not getting enough rest. And Libby was diaphragmatic breathing and getting in the restorative practice of Tai Chi and a gentle walk, which was perfect for her body. So let rest and reduce stress be your prescription for this week. Looking at your schedule, where can you make changes? Where can you set boundaries and say no? Or can you even shift your perspective? If you're busy, are you doing something you love? Because if you are, then it's kind of a privilege and we should try and be a bit more joyful. I catch myself on this all the time. But also remember to schedule in some time just for you. Bit of deep breathing for a few minutes a day can reset that nervous system and get you out of that stress response. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, my next guest, Andrew Dunn from Personal Health, believes movement is medicine. Working with GPs and medical teams, he helps people with conditions such as arthritis, atrial fibrillation, prostate cancer, breast cancer, Parkinson's disease and other conditions by prescribing exercise, not more pills. He joins me in studio now. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Claire. How are you? People will be jumping up and down. Let's just clear it straight away. You're not suggesting no pills at all. You're just saying let's exercise too. Yeah, our the whole purpose of what we're doing, like the vision and the why, is that every single medical patient in Ireland has an exercise prescription. You you will get a tablet, you will get many tablets, and you'll have a a medical or pharmacology prescription. Every single solitary medical patient, in my view, should have a personalised exercise prescription. And this all came from personal experience? Yeah, to to a degree. Um, in a former life, um, I was a professional rugby player and I was small for, a rug, for rugby uh, and I got battered a bit. And uh, so by the age of 30, I had had six surgeries and three of them were relatively speaking major I mean they weren't threatening to my overall health but they were surgeries where you'd reconstruction of a joint so I had three reconstructive surgeries of shoulder uh, knee and ankle and I suppose I had to be very switched on about my rehabilitation because my livelihood was at stake so um, I got this heightened uh, interest not not really by choice but I, I certainly had this interest in rehabilitation I would it be very annoying to the doctors and medical teams about what could I do because I I was fearful of losing my job effectively and um, as time went on there was a uh, Professor Arthur Tanner actually who's since passed away was it was a very well-known um, doctor and he was the Leinster team doctor and he suggested that I look into once my, I mean, my my body was failing and he suggested I go into medicine or physiotherapy or something he thought I might be suited to. So that's where that kind of developed from there, yeah. And people will say, yeah, I mean, that's fine. You're, you know, a rugby player or you're into rugby. Of course, you're going to rehabilitate mm. your muscles and your joints to get back on the pitch. But the regular person who has chronic illness or an operation or breast cancer, they're going to go through all their treatment. Where does exercise come into it for them? Um, I think the, there are barriers. There are very, I mean, as you, as you kind of correctly observe, you know, professional sports, people are more inclined to exercise. Um, and then there's this divergence, I think, 
I mean, there's divergence in society in so many areas at the moment, but there's a divergence, I think, towards super healthy, super fit people and people who are going the opposite way and are really unhealthy and unfit. And there's there's less of a middle ground anymore. And um, for people living with illness, people going through medical treatment, there are significant challenges to exercising. Very, the vast majority of patients we deal with are petrified of the idea of exercise. Most of them hate the idea of gyms. Um, but it's about understanding that it can be fun, but it's a significant um, component part of your recovery. And so it needs to be aligned with the medical team, with your medications, and it needs to, I suppose, start at a point where gently we tiptoe towards the idea that you are where you are and that's okay. And whether that's never having exercised or not interested in exercise and, um, and, and feeling maybe not strong or not fit. I mean, I would used to joke with my mother at home if, when she, she got a cleaner later on in life, but she would clean the house before the cleaner came in. And I, I'd say, but just don't, you don't need to do that. That's why you've got the cleaner coming in. Um, a lot of patients with osteoarthritis are not fit enough to go and do an exercise program. You don't need to be. The whole point of an exercise program is to improve your strength and improve your conditioning. So would you rather be weaker and less fit dealing with diabetes or breast cancer? Or would you rather be stronger and fitter dealing with these, any multitude of issues? I have you on the exercise, but this is an argument I've had with my husband many times. You don't clean for the cleaner, you tidy for the cleaner okay. so that they can clean, okay? <laughs> but why is it such an important component? I mean, you've kind of touched on it there, you know, to get to optimum health, you want to be fit and you want to be strong and that's what helps. Is that why it's essential? Um, no, I think it's just essential for happiness, for quality of life. I mean, the, the amount of people who are... Um, who are who we would deal with who are low level fit you know or considered not fit you basically get an improvement particularly people who are low level fit or, or not active with about 6 to 10 weeks of work you get a huge shift in that typically and it's a it's about keeping that baseline those people become moderately fit and there's a massive improvement in quality of life and that's a pretty good result and what what would happen is those people maybe continue to work with us. Um, some of them drop off. Some of them come back in in a couple of months. The unfortunate reality around exercise is the gains that you would make in a six to ten week period will evaporate and or vanish unless you maintain it. So it's got to be um, a lifestyle choice and a shift. I think one of the big things I've found in, in from long-term involvement in, in exercise is that it, people aren't disposed to doing it naturally all the time just to improve. There are some people who are that kind of top end and they look great and they're, you know, you see them in the fitness magazines and in gyms and they'll do, they'll do exercise, they'll do it themselves and they're motivated. The vast majority of people we see have had a shot across the bow and they've, they're concerned, they're worried and they're like, that this is my line in the sand moment. Um, I had a diagnosis of cancer. I've had a heart, some episode in terms of a, either a heart attack or or a diagnosis, um, you know, of 
anything from arthritis through to a rheumatological issue through to, to a neurological condition or a metabolic issue or metabolic disease, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, any of the above. But they're a bit shook and they think, well, look, I've got to change my lifestyle a little bit. And they're the people who come to us and, and I think do pretty well. It, w- it would be great and it would be an ideal world if everyone was healthy all the time. But the reality is the vast majority of us are going to go through challenges. And I, I think that's kind of the, the small niche area that we're working in. And do you think that's because the focus around exercise is so much weighted on losing weight or, you know, altering our body to look a certain way, either tone up, bulk up or lose weight. And some people go, do you know what, especially as you get a bit older, I'm not that bothered about that. I'm just going to live. I'm just going to eat the cake, drink the drinks and get on with my life. And that is also fine until, as you say, you get a shot across the bow. I think people forget the other elements of exercise and how important it is for all the workings of your body to be at an optimum, as well as that quality of life you mentioned. Uh, yeah. I mean, I heard a very funny um, quote the other day. It was, it was, if you swap your morning coffee for a green tea, you can reduce by up to 80% any enjoyment you've got left in life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it made me chuckle. And um, I think exercise, by definition... The actual definition of exercise, which is a subset of movement, and um, the World Health Organization, the American College of Sports Medicine, it's by definition there's two words in in the uh, full phrase that I can't remember: planned and repetitive. It already sounds joyless. So, you know, we we would see a number of cancer patients, maybe a breast cancer patient who's who's had chemotherapy, going through radiation therapy, has fatigue, brain fog. Um, hormonal changes, nausea, maybe a kind of a peripheral neuropathy, losing sensory kind of sensation in the feet or hands. Um, the likelihood of that person wanting to do something joyless, strenuous, repetitive and planned is pretty low. So I think joy has to be reintroduced to exercise as a term, as a concept, it can be done outdoors, it can be done with friends, it can be done um, in a multitude of ways. Dancing is exercise, you know, walking is exercise, housework is exercise for some people who love it. But the, the whole idea is that there's, a, there's, a, there's an exact amount each person needs to do as a baseline. And again, to use that, that cancer analogy, if, if that lady is, is getting breast cancer treatment, her oncology team, they won't say we'll do a little bit of chemo and we'll do, you maybe, you pop in next week and decide how much radiation therapy you want. There's a dosage that they get, there's an intensity to it, there's a frequency and it's based, very, I mean, it's, it's become very advanced. It's based on that individual person and their body composition, their medical history and their medication and their age. So, if you apply those same principles that are applied in a, in a medical consult to a medical exercise consult, it's, it's a very simple transition. If I'm talking to you, Claire, based on your age, your medical history, your medications, if you've got any, your injury history, um, your willingness or, or, or likelihood to want to do exercise, it all comes in 
to kind of into a little equation that are an algorithm at the end of it we come out and say you need to do 75 minutes a week in a certain heart rate zone you need to do 150 in another you can do it the ways you want to do it if you want to do it by hill walking you do it by hill walking but you know the amount you need to do we also know you, you need to do two strength sessions eight major muscle groups and we show you how to do it people might come into us and say i want my goal is to walk around Dundrum shopping centre pain-free and buy myself a dress. That's a goal, and that's that's what we're working towards. We're not working towards, this, you know, changing your, your getting a six-pack or or the, the aesthetic side. We've no mirrors in our clinic on purpose. It's about um, changing your approach and your relationship with exercise and aligning that with your medical team. You're going to join the dots between your consultant, your doctor, and ourselves and ultimately we're the ones allied healthcare are the people who will the docs will keep you alive and we'll make your life worth living and the, the answer is in between when I when I studied in the College of Surgeons did the first couple of years two or three years you're in the same class as the medical students and then at some stage you walk in one one turns left into a different room one turns right and in the in room on the left they're being told what pharmacology you use to manage diabetes and room on the right you're being told what lifestyle changes and exercise and diet do to manage diabetes. And I do hear this all the time. It's like our healthcare <coughs> system is actually a sick care system. We're not dealing mm. with people on how to be well. Mm. They only have time and they're so overwhelmed with treating the people that are already sick and sort of patching them up mm. and sending them back out again. And that's not to say the work isn't amazing and even that... Um, cancer analogy you gave you said with all of those symptoms they may still be experiencing and everything they've already been through it's hard for them to imagine getting out and doing repetitive exercise but at the same time you wouldn't want that person to go back to a sedentary lifestyle where they just drive in the car sit at a desk until it gets dark and then drive home and sit in the couch again either that doesn't sit right Mm. either so you mentioned that divergence in the Royal College of Surgeons. Does that still happen now or are you yeah. getting referrals from medical professionals? Is yeah. that starting to happen? Yeah, I think the dial is shifting and um, it's slow. I, I, and it, there's a couple of things happening. It's, it's not because there's um, an ideological objection to it from medical professionals. The vast majority of whom we work with are very, very aware and um, appraised of the literature and the evidence base and they're doing continuous professional development and they understand that they might they may not understand specifics such as if a diabetic type 2 diabetic does strength training it's it's better for their health than if they do aerobic training and go for a walk they might know that bit but they'll know that exercise is really important and they may make that referral but the challenge, the reason the dial is moving slowly is because, you know, I might deal with a GP who sees 20 plus consults in a day. And and I've said to many of the, my GP friends, respectfully, it's like air traffic control. And, and they're just, they're just trying to avoid planes crashing into each other. And they sit there and they say, right, you've 10 minutes what can I do to make sure you're safe and in good hands and stable, medically stable? Is there any red flags here? Are you okay? 
that gets out of the way, that probably takes five, seven minutes. Then it's dealing with the, the kind of issue at hand. Then it may be right medication review. We need to write a script for the pharmacy. If it's something they feel they can't deal with, they'll in, invariably they'll invariably go maybe up the chain, for want of a better word, to a consultant or a specialist. Um, and the the the, uh, the tilde, the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging, which is an amazing. Um, resource for, for healthcare professionals. Professor Roseanne Kenny from, from Trinity set it up about 15 years ago. They, they publish info all the time. They have this shocking statistic from 2020 that 97% of the Irish population over 65 saw a GP in 2020. 0.88% were referred to a dietitian. Less than 4% to a physiotherapist. So at a 97% of the Irish population over 65, all of whom would be relevant for exercise advice and dietary advice from a clinical professional, you're talking about 0.88% and less than five going, getting referred in that direction. I think the problem is the referrals are the GP or, or medic is seeing the patient, ensuring they're safe and stable. If it's something that's more severe, they'll, they'll refer up the chain to a consultant, but there's almost no referrals going sideways or downwards, for want of a better word. I don't or mean necessarily that disrespect. No, absolutely. Or necessarily time to really get into people's relationships, stresses. Absolutely. Are they finding joy in life? How are they sleeping? How much water are they? And, and keep on that. Yeah. So, I mean, reading up for today's interview through your notes, it says in medicine, there's usually a 10 year gap between new evidence and its implementation between research and medicine. So at one hand, we're finding out all of these benefits for it to actually get there mm. is going to take a bit of time. So what's your advice to people, particularly if they are feeling a little bit lost in their exercise programme? Mm. Maybe, maybe they haven't even had that shot across the bow. Where do you suggest they start? Because you're right, loads of people think they need to wait till they look a certain way because, mm. before they could dare to get out, even for a walk or a run, let alone a gym. I think initially... There's a real, there's a baseline requirement of, of move, movement. I think people hear 10,000 steps a lot. Um, it's not really helpful because it's not that easy to attain and there's absolutely no evidence behind it. The, Stop the, it. That's just an urban myth that's going it's, around. It's effectively an urban myth, yeah. It was... Um, to sell tracker watches. Well, yeah, I, it came It came from... Um, it was something that happened way back in the seventies. There was some study done, um, but it was a it was a number that was landed upon, and it's kind of grown legs from there. But what is reasonable is to say, okay, it's actually quite difficult to do less than three thousand steps in a day. It is hard to to get less. You literally have to do nothing all day long. So, if you can land, if you're if you get a tracker watch and you look and you can get four thousand, you can probably look at getting. In and around 7,000 is actually the evidence base for improved, starting to improve fitness. So that alone is a start. But in reality, then that gap, for the people who want to start, that would be my advice. It's simply just start by walking and moving. Um, and finding something that you enjoy. Like you said, it can be dancing, it can be housework, it can be chatting to your friend as you walk the beach. It doesn't have to be a particular way. And that's where the conversation is changing. Andrew, we are out of time, although I could talk to you all day long. If people want to find out more, you can go to personalhealth.ie. Andrew Dunn, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a million, Claire. Michelle Van Vailey is a mindfulness educator and yoga teacher. She was diagnosed with dyslexia 
when she began to notice issues with her young son at school. He eventually got a diagnosis privately of dyslexia himself and she's calling for a complete overhaul of how schools deal with neurodiversity and additional needs. I'm also joined on the line by educational psychologist Pauline Cogan. Well, you're both very welcome, ladies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michelle, can I start with you then? When did you get your diagnosis of dyslexia? Well, I was told uh, when I was 18 that I was dyslexic by my father, who was a school teacher. Um, So he, I I don't know when he had me assessed. I have no memory of it, but he felt it might cause me to hold myself back in school. So he didn't want to tell me. He just put his attention towards assisting me through my challenges around school and then informed me when I was 18. And that was a bit of a revelation because what happened for me as a child, if I'm looking back, was I just felt stupid a lot of the time. Now, I wasn't stupid. I was earning significantly decent grades, you know, but uh, I had a lot of support from him. So so that feeling of, of feeling stupid because things are kind of coming in, I refer to it as coming in backwards or not getting the whole picture or the detail, that uh, made me feel like I wasn't the same as the other kids and it was distressing. So it was a relief to hear that there was a reason for it and to have more understanding about what was causing that in my brain. That's so interesting because my own son, um, he's 11 now, he has a dyslexia diagnosis and part of me was uh, hesitant about letting him know that because I didn't want him to have a label or have an idea in his head that there was something with him that meant he couldn't do anything or, or even give him a free pass to sit back and be like, well, I've got dyslexia, so I won't even try. But when I hear you describe it that way, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be either, but it actually informs knowledge is power, as we say. Yeah, and I think it's helpful. I think there are age-appropriate ways to explain it to children. And I think that there's a lot of research now coming out that is defining dyslexia as a different way of thinking as opposed to a a learning difficulty. It's just we aren't seeing things as uh, linear as people might in the standard education system. So it sets us apart a little but we can facilitate that by knowing about it. And so there, there, this can be exciting. It doesn't have to be damaging. Tell me a little bit then about your son. He was six when you first started to see issues at school. Yeah, well, he, his teacher, in fairness, it, the teachers are amazing. And, and like my father, they are interested in the children and they want to help. And um I think that the problem in general is that we all don't have enough information, parents or teachers, about these things. So his teacher notified me at the second half of his senior infant year that he was bursting into tears in class and she couldn't identify why. So it might be we're going to break for yard and he burst into tears. Or it might be open your page, open your book to this particular page and he burst into tears. And so none of us really were clued in as to what the distress was about. But now learning as much as I have about this process, what I understand now is that transitions can be difficult and keeping up with um, moving through something can be difficult. And you and I spoke about this before when when we talked about mindfulness and parenting that trying to get his shoes on and get him out the door was kind of a contentious thing 
I thought that was more of a, like, he was just not listening to me. And what was happening for him was that transition was very difficult for him. So I needed to slow down enough to give him some space around the transition. So that was how this showed up for him in school as well. The transition was a challenge, there was distress, and his teacher called my attention to it. So then I was paying attention in a way that I hadn't been up until that point. By the time then he was seven, there would be a lot of tears before school and then again into the evening. And and I think, you know, as, as parents or as adults now looking back on school, we, we kind of look at, the, at this as a, an emotional issue that they just want to play all day. And of course, they're going to get upset around school. But you think we should be looking a little bit deeper and you would have liked to have get a get more of an assessment for your son earlier on rather than just thinking it was an emotional issue. Yeah, I think I think parents have a responsibility. I think it, it, he's my child and I need to look after his emotional needs for sure. Um, so I was looking at that at home and I'd said it to the school several times that I was dyslexic, that this was a concern to me. Could this be causing this emotional distress? And what I was told was that he had been placed in resource hours, which I was really grateful for. They were taking him out of class to give him additional support in school and that they were keeping an eye. And what I thought that meant was that they were keeping an eye out for dyslexic tendencies. Now, again, I understand in retrospect that most of them don't have that kind of training. Most of the teachers don't have that kind of training to be able to see that, uh, that clearly. And what I'm understanding now also is that children will mask their difficulty in the classroom so as to appear the same as their peers. So they don't want their teacher to see them distressed or their peers to see them distressed. So they really work to hold themselves together for the school day. And then they come home and and this sort of pressure cooker just explodes all over the place. And, And it's really difficult for parents to understand because I didn't realize that this was a result of him holding it all together. It did seem like it was like, I'm just not going to do my homework, so I'm gonna have a tantrum now. And that's not what was happening. What was happening was that his distress was spilling out after school. And it carried on well into the night to the point that it became very, very traumatic. Lockdown was a real eye opener for you then as well, because obviously the the homeschooling was something that was forced into all of our homes. But you were really able to see firsthand the issues he was having with numbers and, and letters. And again, there were outbursts in trying to do the work. So you decided to go privately with an educational psychologist. What, what did you find out then? Yeah, so I I saw some things that I thought were patterns and what I noticed also there was so much more kind of watching family films together and that sort of thing and he would need me to pause for a moment to explain what had just happened in the scene and then we would resume the film. So I thought something's not connecting here in a way that he's understanding this this piece of this film. So it just started to really resonate more deeply with me that there was a cognition thing happening and I needed to get psychological support because I didn't know what was going on. And I wasn't getting the advice from the school, which is something I think that can change really quickly and very easily. But I got advice from other parents. So another parent gave me Pauline Kogan's name and I got on her wait list, which even privately, the wait list was a year and a half. So 
it, you know, the first inkling for me in retrospect, that first inkling of there's something wrong in senior infants, I wish I had entered a wait list at that time. And if I had any advice for parents, it would be as soon as you're concerned, at least get on the wait list because you can cancel if your concerns change. But the wait lists are long. And in that period of time, the child's distress increases so much. My child's distress increased so much that he wanted to end his life by the time he was nine years old. So he's now been diagnosed with dyslexia from that private appointment and it's thought he has extrasensory needs and some dyspraxia. So he should have been getting speech and language therapy and the use of assisted technology early on. But you're coming on here today not because you're bitter about that, because you want there to be an overhaul, like I said in the introduction, of how we deal with neurodiversity so we can catch it earlier and help the teachers who are overwhelmed. And I know there's been a lot more funding gone to SNAs. Even the way we talk about neurodiversity is so much further on than when I was at school. But the way we handle it and the wait times and when it all begins, that's where you're looking to really look for change. Yeah, it needs to be earlier. And the parents need to be given a guide as to what the steps are and what to do. And I think rather than being given additional resource hours in school, which again, I appreciated at the time, I would prefer to have been told that we have this National Educational Psychology Service. We are allocated two children per school to this service and our allocations are filled by more extreme cases than yours. So what you should do is go and look for a private assessment if you're worried about your child. And had I been given that advice, I think that we would have maybe not gotten into such extreme sort of trauma responses in my child because we would have had, you know, at least an avenue laid out for us, even if it wasn't the the public avenue because those spaces were allocated, it would have been at least here's a different road that you can go down. Now, not everyone can afford private assessments and and we did find it really challenging. But at the same time, waiting for three years was definitely not the right thing to do. Yeah, I do think that's really worrying, Michelle, because, you know, reading up on on some of the notes you sent in, you spent €5,000 on private assessments Um, and other appointments. So not everybody is going to have that money, which is a real worry. Um, I want to bring in educational psychologist Pauline Cogan. Pauline, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Pauline, why does it feel like there's there's more uh, more diagnosis of neurodiversity at the moment? Were is there more of it around or was it just not diagnosed years before? Picked up. It was not diagnosed. Uh, in the past and many times these children were either put into special schools or um, they were hidden away or, you know, but now uh, teachers are certainly more aware and they're out in the ether. Uh, Teachers are very, very aware of messages coming through to them and I welcome a program like this because I'm uh, engaged in psychoeducational assessments but I'm also engaged quite a lot in educating teachers. 
and they're a wonderful bunch of very, very committed, vocationally driven uh, people who want to uh, just better themselves all the time. But in the past, teachers just uh, were taught to teach, but now they have to upskill in so many different areas, in psychology, in speech and language, uh, and when they're in learning support or special education teaching, set teaching as it's called now, they're doing touch typing for children who need to be uh, tech savvy. They're doing speech and language training with the help of uh, people in primary care settings. They're learning about dyspraxia. They're learning about dyslexia. They're very, very busy people, and they're doing their absolute utmost. But one of the things that Michelle said, uh, a really strong message from her, is get going early. All the research indicates that if you can grasp the nettle of a child's difficulty before the age of seven, you are going to be dealing with 83% normal scholastic journeys. So it's really important that things get going really, really early. But one of the major things that teachers need to establish is that children have good language and that their language, that they have good expressive language, that they're able to say what they want to say, but also they have good receptive language, that they can understand what it is that people uh, say to them. And uh, Michelle brought out the point that um, certainly when she was talking to me, she was talking about having to pause a movie so to explain the child to the child what's going on. That's a receptive language problem. And the child may not have the language or may not have the speed of processing of the language to understand what's being said. So my point here is that the earlier the intervention happens, the better. And aside from the assessment issues and, and, and catching neurodiversity earlier to ensure that the supports are there in place, is there a real issue with our rigid school structure that is still very much leans to the academic and children sitting in their seat for long periods of time taking in information? That just doesn't suit everybody. Well, it depends on the climate of the school. And you will hear, um, um, say, clinical psychologists or educational psychologists who go to schools to observe children. In the infant classroom, there's lots of sitting on the floor, lying on the floor, playing with things, lots of manipulative things to play with, counting um, animals, all that sort of stuff. In senior infants, that's reduced a little bit. And there's more formal education, formal learning to read and write. And I have a lot to say on that one. But by the time it comes to first and second class, the manipulatives are fewer again. And I would really have a dream wish for classes that they, when they're teaching, for instance, mathematics, that there would be what they call manipulatives, uh, things for counting in single units, in tens, in hundreds, thousands. And there's specialized equipment to help children learn about place value and all that sort of stuff. And I get reports from schools when I send out forms for the teacher to fill in. They say it's as if it's a negative they say he still needs, you know, manipulatives. And this is in second class, when I would say that it should be required 
up to 6,000 actually into first year as an explanation of how things are as they are in mathematics. And you were a real advocate for movement breaks as well. Now, I know the kids Absolutely. get a, you know, a morning break where they eat and then they get out for, I don't know, is it is it 15 minutes to run around in yeah. the yard? And then aside from PE, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. As you say, yeah, the play leaves the, the classroom and it just becomes formal learning. But it's it's a miracle that children can learn at all because it, they're made up of certain systems. They have a visual system, an auditory system for listening. They have a touch system for learning and kinesthetic learning. And they have a motor system. And they ha- they're made up of uh, a complete unit of muscles, deep tendons, bones, and structures that need to be stretched and exercised in order to keep pace and to keep attention. And children, the... the attention span of children differs according to age. And I would say that a wise teacher will give a break to children after 20 minutes or 25 minutes of class. And you give that break for just two minutes. It can be just a simple thing such as, okay, kids, everyone, use your hands and lift your bottom off the chair with your two hands. Try to support your body with your two hands or standing out from the chair and bracing against the back of the chair or doing jumping jacks or stretching up to the roof, the ceiling, and then down to touch your toes. That will help children to have what's known as a body break and it will make them available for learning for another 20 minutes. The teacher is the winner here. If you spend two minutes giving the break, you win 18 minutes. That's for every time you do it. And it makes the children recalibrate and stretch their deep tendons and muscles to get them feeling good in their skin again. And we will be told that this is a funding issue, that a huge amount is is being given over to special needs in the classroom and that it's a demand and supply issue, that the demand is just so huge that the supply is still catching up. But you've given some real key moves that could make a real impact. And I suppose it starts with teacher training, because even as I'm saying this, I'm picturing the faces of my kids' teachers, all amazing people with the children in their classroom at the heart of everything they're doing. So no one is suggesting that there isn't the care and the will there, but the training needs to be changed a little, you believe? It's a a question of doing the right thing at the right time. And it's really important for teachers to know that a four-year-old or a five-year-old crossing the threshold of the primary school for the first day on the 1st of September or whatever date it is after the summer holidays, these children are a product of their family home. And they, the one thing in language that they really understand and have been told to attend to is meaning, the meaning of language. So they're thinking holistically about language. And they're starting to teach phonics far, far too early. The child is wanting to learn meaning. And phonics is language devoid of meaning. And the children 
many children just don't get it and they can't do phonics. And if a child is at risk of dyslexia, the one thing that they all have in common is very, very poor short-term memory, working memory. And when a teacher is going to be teaching literacy through phonics, the one thing that they are going to have the difficulty with is stringing sounds together because that's playing to their weak suit. And then before you know it, because the high flyers are doing well with the jolly phonics or whatever phonics systems they use, then the children who are in the middle or the lower end of performance will be viewed as children who have a difficulty. And very oftentimes children are referred to me and their collateral damage to phonics rather than genuine difficult cases. It's because phonics has started far too early. We actually don't need a knowledge of phonics until we have a reading age of 10. When do you need phonics? You only read, use phonics when you're reading the content of a me- medicine bottle or if you come across a word that's unfamiliar. What these children need is a balanced approach and they need to be taught to read by the whole word method. It's the, the way your mother and your grandmother and maybe even yourself learn to read. Michelle, I know you are with a a good few parents groups and you've all bandied together and you've made contact with the Department of Education and uh, special needs and inclusion, not just to bang at the door, but to really call for change. Have you received anything that gives you hope? So far, not really. So far, there seems to be a... uh, what I refer to as the company line is we don't have the resources. And I hear that. I get that they don't have the resources. So let's find them. Let's make them available. Um, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a politician. But we can see that there is a problem here. I think if you interviewed teachers, they would also tell you that there's a problem here. So let's see, let's unearth this problem and let's put some resources in the right places to upskill the teachers in the way that that is useful to them or to provide more psychological resources to the families that need them so that they're not as we were where we were suddenly in a massive crisis because you can't imagine a a nine-year-old child telling you they don't want to live and suddenly we are now looking at educational psychologists occupational therapists speech and language therapy we we ended up seeing a child psychologist because his mental state had declined so much. So there was this massive output in distress when, as Pauline was saying there, we can slowly build towards this when we catch this stuff earlier and we don't have to go into crisis mode. I think that the Department of Education can add more resources if they just start to allocate the funds and and where they're going to find them, they're going to have to go back to to argue that out with their colleagues and start turning money towards children and mental health. How are things with your son at the moment? Things are absolutely brilliant. I'm almost in tears saying that. It has changed so much since we've gotten the assessments. We got the speech and language therapy support. He is feeling more confident in himself. He's now going on play dates again and he's reintegrated into after school activities. And I think a lot of it is that he receives a proper sort of educational support. 
but also he got an explanation for why he was having a difficulty or why he felt so different than his peers that was causing him so much distress. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I want to quit school. Do you know, and, and when they're, he was young enough. So when they are in secondary school and you add the brain changes and the hormonal changes and that, that need to separate from your parents. So there's this new sort of, I'm not doing it your way experience then it's much harder to get them the supports that they need. So I am so relieved that we are where we are right now. And I'm so grateful for Pauline and all the people that have educated me and all the parents groups that explain the process to me. So much could happen, so much could help parents if the process is explained clearly so that we know where to go with the distress because I had no idea and I wasn't been given the right direction. But my son is doing very well now and um, I think we're on the right track. Well, Michelle Van Valey, mindfulness educator, yoga teacher and mum and educational psychologist Pauline Cogan. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire, so much for putting some attention into this area. And for more information, you can check out Michelle's blog on her website, michellevanvaley.com. There's a list of resources, Facebook groups and ways to start if you're concerned about your child. And Pauline is a part of a training programme for teachers on neurodiversity with the Irish Learning Support Association. For more, you can go to isla.ie. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey, to Hugo De Silva who was on sound, to my guests and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.